Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in a moment, what to do with Greenbrier Mall. Atlanta City Councilmember Marcy Overstreet joins me, and we'll talk about your suggestions for the 56-year-old mall. But first this, more Georgians will soon be eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. Now here's Georgia Governor Brian Kemp making the announcement yesterday. The criteria will open up on March 15th to Georgians over the age of 55 and those with high-risk conditions as defined by the CDC. Adding these additional high-risk Georgians will mean that vaccination will be available to categories that have accounted for 92% of our deaths due to COVID-19 in Georgia. Now, Kemp says the state's vaccine supply is finally increasing, and that means all Georgians 16 years old or older should be eligible for inoculation starting next month, and the governor stressed if supplies continue to increase. This announcement comes roughly one year after the coronavirus crisis was declared a pandemic. Now let's go back one year ago when the World Health Organization made the announcement. In the days and weeks ahead, we expect to see the number of cases, the number of deaths, and the number of affected countries climb even higher. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Wow, can you believe it's been a year? Now, since last March, 831,271 COVID-19 cases have been reported here in Georgia, and 15,706 coronavirus-related deaths have been reported in total. Nationwide, the U.S. leads all nations with more than 533,000 deaths. And globally, as of March 11th today, the outbreak of the virus has spread to six continents, and over 2.6 million people have died. Coming up next, we'll hear reflections on the past year from a Savannah hospital leader, Paul Hinchy, president and CEO of St. Joseph's Candler Health System. And he'll share how his hospital system hopes to prioritize black and Latino patients when it comes to distributing the COVID-19 vaccine. All that's coming up. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Prior to the pandemic, you know, food insecurity was already a major issue in our nation. And it's a quality of life issue that does not discriminate. Families, individuals struggling to keep food on the table and gain access to food while challenges that existed before the pandemic are now just being amplified. And according to Feeding America, child food insecurity, insecurity in Georgia due to the pandemic has increased, pay attention to this, from 16.1% of 2018 to 22% in 2020. And so the need continues. Now, thanks to a lot of money from the federal government, we're going to talk about what this means for so many Georgians. 
$11.9 million from the Georgia Division of, for the Georgia Division of Family and Children's Services. This will go to food banks in 159 Georgia counties and about 2,400 nonprofits. We're now going to find out just exactly how this will work. Joining me now, and she's always such a great guest, from the Georgia Food Bank Association, Dana Kraft. She's executive director of the Georgia Food Bank Association. Dana is always welcome. Good, good to have you as Thanks. always. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. It's a conversation that we've had many times before, but we need to we need to keep having it. Um, for the folks that may not be aware, just how many members are in the Georgia Food Bank Association? So there are eight Feeding America food banks that serve all 159 counties in the state of Georgia, and seven of those food banks are active with the Georgia Food Bank Association. And they all eight share this grant money that is coming through the Department of Family and Children's Services. So someone's saying, well, 11, point, $11 million, uh, every little bit helps. But does that begin to even, I guess, address what, how much more is needed, I guess? Right. So the, the, this, this, these funds are targeted. Mm-hmm. They are for a, 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 a program that the food banks created in order to provide supplemental nutrition for families with children who are at risk of homelessness or who are TANF eligible. And so in in some of the food bank regions, they're gonna use these funds for household commodities because they've got household distribution programs. In the Southern part of the state, several of the food banks use this for weekend food for kids who uh, are um, coming in on Mondays uh, and the counselors are reporting that they're coming in hungry. And so it, it provides weekend food for them to go home. So it's used in a variety of different programs. It, it essentially doubles what the food banks normally get. They normally share a, um, a $7.5 million grant mm-hmm. for this program. It purchases protein, fruits, and vegetables. Uh, you know, Rose, you know that the food banks have what they have, right? Mm-hmm. And what gets donated is what gets donated. And that's not always uh, the, all the right elements to make a meal, mm-hmm. right? And so the, these foods supplement what the food banks have coming in from other sources, in, including USDA federal sources, in order to provide a more complete meal to families with children. Um, on the scale, though, I, I will tell you that the, the food banks in Georgia you know, have been responding to an unrelenting 50% increase in mm-hmm. demand, and they've done that with additional USDA commodities that have come through the Families First and the CARES Act and trade mitigation commodities that were purchased in order to sort of mitigate the, um, the tariff issues with China. Mm-hmm. And, and two of those programs uh, came, came to an end uh, in, in December 31st. And knowing that we were facing what we call a commodities cliff and looking at a 50% increase in demand and a 50% drop in our food supply, um, I approached Director Rollins and his deputy, John Anderson, and said, what can we do? And they, they developed this idea to provide supplemental funding for the GNAP program. So we, we knew we had an additional supply of food coming in for families with children, which is absolutely critical. Um, since then, the federal government did provide some additional USDA commodities mm-hmm. in the December Relief Act. Um, there are no USDA commodities for, for the food banks specifically in uh, the Relief Act being debated today, but there is money to help suppliers uh, who are have food stranded in the, you know, restaurant mm-hmm. suppliers who, who still don't have their supply chain straightened out. And so we are working with USDA to get as much of that food moving through the food bank network as possible. Um, so I, I mean, I can't I can't say enough about our partnership with uh, Department of Family and Children's Services and Director Rollins mm-hmm. and John Anderson and the governor who recognized this need and provided this supplemental funding. And I want to peel back a number that you mentioned. You said at least there, there was a 50% increase in demand for food. But folks should know of that, you're talking about 40% of folks who were seeking emergency food assistance for the first time. And I think that lends itself to tell you just how devastating the pandemic has been on on households in terms of folks who lost maybe 
lost their jobs or you know needed to stay home with the kids. When you hear that number, and what do you want to stress to folks about how folks are living or trying to make it here in Georgia? Well, I think it's important for people to understand that there are many families that are on the edge uh, or really not making it right mm-hmm. now. And I am paying particular attention to children because there are a lot of kids who are not in school. You know, even pre-COVID, 60% of kids in public school were eligible for free and reduced price lunch. So with school and the, you know, nutrition directors have been heroic in their attempts to try to do grab and go lunch for kids in remote learning and, you know, have a delivery, put the lunches on the school buses and run the school bus route. It, it, they've just done a tremendous uh, effort to try to do it, but we are we are still seeing families that are falling through the cracks, children falling through the cracks, families that are suffering, and um, we still have National Guard on site. Um, mm-hmm. uh, since the first week of April, the food banks have had initially 150 members of the National Guard at nine warehouse locations. At this point, we still have 120 working at seven warehouse locations and about a dozen um, uh, really important pantries that are operating in the metro Atlanta area. So, uh, you know, if you're at home and you're doing okay, <laughs> that's great. But mm-hmm. I, we, we want people to understand that, that people through all walks of life have been impacted by these job losses. Um, that child food insecurity increase number, the 38% that you noted earlier, you know, that a lot of those, um, A lot of those kids live in the metro Atlanta area Mm -hmm. uh, where restaurant closures, hotel and convention business closures have impacted uh, people who who, uh, work hourly, low-wage jobs, Um, and in the Savannah area where the convention and tourism business has just, you know, been impacted. You know, Dana, you mentioned that kids, educators were reporting kids coming to school, indicating maybe they were hungry, they hadn't had anything to eat possibly over the weekend. And I know that that is so important for food banks now to be able to help students, households with students, so they can have food for the weekend. A lot of people may not realize that that's that's actually been taking place, but it has. I remember doing a, a profile with the YMCA where they had, you know, bags of food for the kids to take with them. I went in on a Friday to profile and they had bags for the kids to take home for the weekend. A lot of folks don't realize that that is something that's actually happening, not just here in Georgia, but throughout the nation. Right. And over the last year, you know, the food banks have been partnering with the school nutrition directors in order to do household distributions at the same locations where they're, you know, doing grab and go lunch. Um, in order to help supplement what's going home with the families. Um, there have been a lot of great partnerships uh, that are happening, school-based pantries mm-hmm. that have opened in order to make food available uh, to families who need it. And, you know, it would be terrible if there was a family out there who needed help, who didn't feel like that they could come and ask for a help or, or, or who were... Um, who didn't want to ask for help, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, our network is here for everyone. And those 40% of the people who've never sought help before, you know, they are having to figure out how to navigate social services for the first time. And that in itself can be challenging. Dana, if folks want to know more about uh, the Georgia Food Bank Association and how, if there is a, a community or a household that they feel is, is eligible for this, where can they get the information? Well, uh, georgiafoodbankassociation.org has a tab where they could find the food bank that serves their area. Mm-hmm. In, in WABE's um, listening area, the Atlanta Community Food Bank is the food bank that serves, and they have a great te- texting system mm-hmm. where people could text um, uh, uh, to a number and get back the three closest pantries. And that information is available at their website, um, acfb.org. And we'll have a link to all of those as well. Dana Kraft, the executive director for the Georgia Food Bank Association. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for work you all are doing. You're going to help so many people in Georgia who need it right now. Thank you so much, Rose. Appreciate the attention that WABE has been giving to this issue for many months. Thank you.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. As we mentioned earlier, more Georgians will now be eligible for the COVID-19 vaccination. The governor says all adult Georgians should qualify by April. And at his press conference yesterday, the governor was also joined by Georgia Insurance and Fire Safety Commissioner John King, who's leading the state's outreach efforts for the Latino community. On purpose, we have designed, especially our engagement with the Latino community, is to not ask a whole lot of questions because we want to encourage folks to, to come to these sites, take advantage of the vaccine, and, and make them feel comfortable. So what we're trying to do is inspire confidence in the Latino community who is very sensitive of being asked a number of questions about their identity because we want to encourage people to take advantage of the vaccine. Now, still, despite these efforts, the data has consistently shown that throughout the pandemic, Black and Latino Americans continue to be disproportionately affected by this virus. So what's the key to more equitable vaccine distribution? Well, joining me now to share his perspective is Paul Hinchy. He's a president and CEO of St. Joseph's Candler Health System based in Savannah. And he actually wrote a letter to the governor asking the governor to prioritize these groups in the state's COVID-19 vaccine distribution plan. Mr. Hinchy, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yes, Rose, uh, we're, we're glad to be here. I was listening to your uh, previous guest and you interview very well, so I enjoy it and I learned a lot. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And as you know, there's there's so much tied to this pandemic and how it has exasperated so many other what I like to call tentacles of life as it, reflects, as it uh, impacts everyone. When you think about this major milestone now with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, hearing the news, and this is a year later from when the World World Health Organization declared this a pandemic. Now we're a year later, we're talking about maybe more Georgians, all of Georgians being vaccinated by April or having the, being eligible. What goes through your mind? Well, I never thought it could happen, uh, first of all, and and I'll tell you why. I haven't been involved in healthcare for a a long time. I've never experienced uh, a vaccine getting to market as quickly as these vaccines have come to market, and second of all, have the clinical efficacy that they're really going to help people. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are over 95% effective. So somebody pushed some buttons and re-engineered that whole process, and it really shows um, it can be done. Frankly, we weren't anticipating it to be done. We're at ground zero. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're practitioners. We live in the trenches. We're in the foxhole. Um, we know day-to-day life. And we were hunkering down a lot longer than this. Uh, So now we're switching our heads, so to speak, to uh, vaccine distribution Mm -hmm. uh, rather than caring for the high census we had. So we're cautiously ecstatic, frankly, and there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I've heard so many people say that we we probably will have a number of vaccination sites in urban areas or, you know, in more populated areas. But when we get into areas outside of Atlanta and even down where you are in the Savannah area, what concerns do you have about specific communities, rural rural communities and other areas that are outside of these urban cities like Atlanta being able to have access to this vaccine? Yeah, I think you're right on point. Uh, Georgia, as you know, and your audience knows, is really two states. Um, it's an urban state and it's a rural state. In fact, if you look at the land mass, the rural land mass far outweighs the urban land mass because it's a big state. Mm-hmm. So we've got two different populations and that's going to require us to 
think differently on distribution because they're two different countries. And I'd also say it's a different distribution network in major urban areas as well, mm -hmm. because populations in urban areas hunker down into neighborhoods. So um, there's a certain population that can um, get on the internet and they use social media and they hop in the car and they know where to go mm -hmm. because that's part of their day-to-day -day life. In rural areas, that's not so much the case. And in downtown urban areas, that is not the case. Mm. So the good news is um, it looks like there's light at the end of the tunnel that we're going to get the vaccines. But um, as Frost said, we've got miles to go before we sleep. Absolutely. Now the hard work has to happen, which is how do you get it into people's arms? Mm. So it's going to require non-traditional distribution channels to do that. And before we get into that, I want you to educate our listeners here in the Atlanta area. Paint a picture. Give a snapshot of the folks that are utilizing or you all are helping with St. Joseph's Candler Health System. Who are, the, who are these folks? Well, um, again, uh, Savannah is, is uh, a microcosm of the state. We have those um, urban areas that are used to doing things traditional way. And then we have the inner city people. Um, who live in neighborhoods, as I said. So three things have got to happen, frankly, for that population. This is my opinion. Mm -hmm. In those underserved urban areas, you've got to, first of all, establish trust mm -hmm. because they're not used to using the healthcare system the way other people normally do. Uh, the second thing is you've got to have a network on how to get them information because they get information differently. Not all of them have cell phones. Uh, not all of them are uh, hip on social media, especially if you're dealing with inner city aged populations, which in Savannah we are. Mm -hmm. And then the, the third thing is that you've got to find a location where people know how to get to. Mm -hmm. they, they've got to have an internal GPS system, so to speak. So I, I think those three things are important. That's why part of what we wrote to the governor, we think a way of doing that, at least in Southeast Georgia, is through the churches. Mm. And I want to hit on yeah. something that you talked about, uh, because the governor also hinted that some rural areas are seeing what we call vaccine hesitancy at this point. I want to play this clip for you. The criteria will open up on March 15th to Georgians over the age of 55 and those with high-risk conditions as defined by the CDC. Adding these additional high-risk Georgians will mean that vaccination will be available to categories that have accounted for 92% of our deaths due to COVID-19 in Georgia. Now, what does that say to you? This is a, a population that's accounting for 92% of the deaths but yet we've got to figure out how do we get this vaccine? How do we get people to get vaccinated? And we're talking about members of the black and Latino community. Yeah, you're, you're, you're spot on. And I would suggest we keep track of the goal. When we talk about vaccinations, we're talking about 70% of all of us, not 70% of some of us. Mm -hmm. And if you only have, let's say you had 90% vaccination rate in a certain population and 30% in another population, you haven't hit the ball. And so it's all of our responsibility to figure that out. And right now, um, you can look at, a, at an indicator, which is the disproportionate deaths of that population, even without COVID. Mm -hmm. and the disproportionate comorbidities in that population. So you know it's going to take extra effort. It's going to be hand-to-hand -hand combat. I, I can tell you that. You can't take an ad out in the paper mm -hmm. and say there's a public health department and the vaccine is there and drive your car up and get it. That's not going to work. You've got to find a, a, a network that is trusted and can get the work word out and then let that network 
help you do the inoculations. What are you hearing in your area from folks, whether it's from the black or Latino community or even the older popular or anyone saying why they are just a little hesitant about the vaccine? What reason do they give you? Um, there, there are two main reasons. Um, one is history of those populations over the last 34, 30 or 40 years mm -hmm. in the healthcare community where they um, experiments have been done. You can go back to the most famous one dealing with syphilis and things like that. And, you know, in those communities, there's a lot of oral history, mm -hmm. not necessarily written history, but it's oral history and it's passed down and it lingers and it has impact, even though that third or fourth generation may have never experienced it. They've been told about it. So it's, it's the potential distrust of experiences that have happened for decades. Um, then the second thing is, it's just conversations with other neighbors. And that, that, is, that has an effect. It, it's conversations in, in the markets where people are or front porches or whatever. And I'm not really sure. And why aren't you really sure? And before you know it, that that becomes fat. Now, I can, I can tell you one thing we experienced here. When we started this journey, because healthcare workers were the first ones to get inoculated, mm -hmm. one would think that it would be a slam dunk to get to 70% vaccination. It wasn't. When we started our clinics, we were in that 40 to 50% range. And so we got on SurveyMonkey and surveyed everyone and said, hey, what gives? Mm -hmm. And we found out that some people, these are healthcare workers now, had legitimate reasons, but there was a large cadre of undecided. Mm. So what took undecided were town hall meetings, and it took conversations, and it took eyeball to eyeball, it took listening. It took, can you explain to me where you are? Well, I heard. Mm. So I think that and now we're over 70%, but it took work. Think about that in going to an underserved population, especially with, with a group of people who are jaundiced to begin with for good reasons. Mm -hmm. So that's why we, we think the mechanism has to be different. We've engaged, as you probably saw from the letter, which is going great, by the way, 10 pastors. Yeah. The pastors have spoken from the pulpit. They've got a spider web of volunteers and they've gone out. They've actually divided up the neighborhoods, kind of like block situations. And so when we had the clinic, it was a roaring success. But it took a lot of upfront work to get to that point. Short answer is, I think that what Georgia is going to have to do in the rural areas and in the underserved areas to get us to that 70 percent level. You of all people, Paul Hinchy, president and CEO of St. Joseph's Candler Health System based in Savannah. You of all people understand the systemic yeah. health disparities that have existed. When you think about where you want, let's look at your community to be by the end of the year as it relates to folks being vaccinated and maybe seeing the infection rate coming down, all the, what is your hope for your community by the end of the year? My, our hope for the, the community, which is going to take some heavy lifting for the entire community now, you know, the inner city of Savannah is 51% quote unquote minorities, so to speak. So mm -hmm. that's going to create work. We hope to get over that 70%, but that's for everybody. And that's going to take some work. Do you have all the resources your system needs to reach? We have, yeah. all, yes, we have. Now the resources are, do we have the network? We've developed the network. Yes. We've got the sites. B, we know how to do it. C, we have the personnel. What we need though is the doses. Mm -hmm. So we've got to get stuff on a plane or in a truck and get it here. And if the state can get it here, we can get it 
in your arm because we know how to do it. So that's our Achilles heel, so to speak, Rose, right mm -hmm. now. And the jury's still out on that. How many can we get and how fast we can get them? I was going to ask you, what does that projection look like? Do you have any idea? Don't know. No, the, the announcement came out yesterday, as you um, alluded to, but the production side of the question has not been answered. Mm. So that's what we're all waiting for. We have a great relationship with the Department of Public Health, Dr. Davies, and he's all, he's all ready to go. He's in the boat, he's got his oars, he's got his nurses, he's ready to rock and roll. And so are we. So that question is unanswered. We hope to get more clarity uh, within the next week. But we are ready to go except for the vials. Uh, Paul Hinchy is president and CEO of St. Joseph's Candler Health System based in Savannah. Thank you so much for taking the time. We'll stay on top of this. Let us know how it's progressing or not progressing. We want to bring you back and thank you for what you all are doing for so many people in that region. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Rose. Bye. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Maybe you are of a certain age where you remember going to the mall was cool. <laughs> <laughs> hanging out there all day. You didn't have a cell phone, didn't even have a pager. You just knew when to get home because your mama told you. Well, those days, I think, are gone because shopping even in 2021 looks a lot different from what it looked like 10 to 15 years ago. And many people are opting to shop online, obviously, versus traveling to their local mall. And we know the pandemic has shifted things even further, right? So listen to this. According to research conducted by CoreSight, and they track retail data one in four malls and as many as one in two could eventually close for good. Now, right here in Atlanta, many are concerned about the future of Greenbrier Mall located on the city's southwest side. And it was announced recently that Macy's, the last standing anchor store, was closing its doors. But people have suggestions and they have concerns. Now, Atlanta City Councilmember Marcy Collier-Overstreet has been at the forefront seeking feedback from the community. She even hosted a virtual event called Saving Greenbrier. She joins the program. And a little bit later in the conversation, we'll bring in educator and community organizer Jason Allen, who chairs the Neighborhood Planning Unit, or MPUK. But I want to begin with City Councilmember Marcy Overstreet, who represents District 11. Councilmember Overstreet, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Nice to be here, Rose. Thanks for having me. You used to hang out at the mall? Oh, <laughs> of course. You know, <laughs> I used to hang out at the mall. I, hang, I hung out at the mall not only in the last 20 years since I've had my own children taking them to the mall, but I was hanging out at that mall in the early 70s mm. when I used to go with my mother and she, she'd want me to shop at Rich's and, and, and Buster Brown and I wanted to shop at, at Learners and Baker's, <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, I was I was hanging at the mall for a lot lots of years, decades. Talk about just through your perspective and from your heart, why Greenbrier Mall, what it holds for so many people in the community. So Greenbrier Mall is a staple in the fact that our whole being uh, was surrounded around that mall for so long. We uh, is the first Chick Fil A. Mm -hmm. um, in, in that kind of space ever. Um, it, it, it was the place where we all went for school shoes um, and we would meet up even when we were high school students in Southwest Atlanta, we would meet up there every single weekend to eat uh, and go to Orange Julius and go to the movies. Mm. Um, all of that at Greenbrier Mall. So um, it's something that, and even now uh, with Macy's leaving, that was the place where all of the legacy neighbors, all of our seniors mm -hmm. bought their grandkids Easter clothes and, mm. and Christmas clothes. I know my mother still lives in the area and my children had a closet of clothes from Macy's. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just always been a part of our heart. Um, it's where we went and bought, bought our, our records. Uh, we would hang out at Record Bar. Um, and just walk the mall. And it's just what we've done 
in Southwest Atlanta for so very long. And unfortunately, we've not um, been able to, you know, change the culture at Greenbrier where it's moving along like the other malls are mm-hmm. around the area. And now, as I heard you mention, malls may be um, a thing of the past. Yeah. Big box retail is is really not the direction where anyone is going. So, so what are you hearing? Because you held a virtual event called Saving Greenbrier. We should note that mm-hmm. um, it is managed by a certain property, so they would have input too. Yes. But what did, what did you hear from the community? So what I heard from the community is, first of all, they wanted to say in what Greenbrier looks like once it, it is um, rebranded and people preferred saying repurposing because that's what's going on with malls these days. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to say in that. And luckily, we are dealing with investors that really do want to listen to us and are open to working with us. So I've had conversations with Fulton County. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, My constituents are excited that Fulton County is investing in Greenbrier. You know, the tax commissioner's office there had an opportunity to go across the street and they chose to stay at Greenbrier. And not only through our conversations and working with Hendon Properties, that they choose to stay at Greenbrier, but they expand it. They're making it a, a, a state-of-the-art, um, top-of-the-line, updated, expanded mm-hmm. um, tax commissioner's office. So we're happy about that. Let um, me, and oh, we're still working. I'm, I'm, no, I'm open to your question. Okay, I was going to ask you, and, and, and yeah. you can be real about it because I'm going to ask Mr. Jason oh. Allen this too. What don't, <laughs> what don't you want <laughs> to happen to Greenbrier Mall? I don't want Greenbrier to go away and I don't want Greenbrier to have a, um, a, a retail store, an anchor store that's larger than the beauty supply that we already have there. And that's just me being super real. Mm. We've got beauty supplies on every corner. We don't, we're, we're good. We don't need another one. Um, and are they black? already a nice, are they black owned? Uh, no. And that's the thing. Um, a, a part of my uh, part of my Saving Greenbrier open dialogue, our virtual meeting um, was really trying to employ our our people of color to invest in not just Greenbrier, but South Atlanta, period, Southwest Atlanta, uh, the Greenbrier quarter, the Campbellton Road quarter. Uh, that way, we're not asking these privately owned business owners to give us what we need. We need to buy the block. So that's what we talked about. Um, uh, and, and that's just being super real. We need more black owned businesses to so that we're not begging for the things that we like and want to see in our communities. I want to bring in now educator and and. Uh, chair of the MP, MPUK, I believe it's right, uh, Richard Allen, and you, or Jason Allen, I'm sorry, because you actually on Twitter, you're like, hey, I got a plan. And I said, hey, come on the show, um, which that's what we do around here. We don't have any rules. We just invite anybody on the show. But let me ask you this, Jason. You heard what Councilmember Overstreet said about what she would not like to see. I'm going to ask that question of you as well. I think it's important awesome. for folks to understand. Let- Yes, I just want to say I'm the former MPUK chair. Oh, okay. I'm actually in council members Overstreet's um, district now, so a part of the MPUP. But definitely shout out to MPUK and the oh, continuing. Okay. Our apologies on them. that. Yeah. No, no, no. It's totally okay because um, I, I do tweet about MPUK often because I grew up there. Uh, I do want to speak to what we don't want to see um, in regards to the young people and uh, young adults. I do want to give uh, uh, kudos to our council person. I attended the Saving Greenbrier event and it was amazing. And it was a sense of urgency that she just spoke to around entrepreneurship and us buying back the block. And so one of the songs that I start off my classes with sometimes is PJ Morton's Buy Back the Block. And it speaks exactly to what... um, Council member Overstreet just mentioned, and our youth want to see more opportunities around just that entrepreneurship. Um, how can we make this a epicenter of, you know, excellence and it was once for our communities? Well, let me ask you all this, because I can imagine someone saying, well, listen, are you trying to save Greenbrier Mall and just have more stores in there or 
are you willing to accept that maybe it needs to be redeveloped, reimagined, repurposed, where it could be something that is beneficial not only to the community but the entire region? Do you have to say Greenbrier Mall for it to remain a mall? Is that what you want, Councilmember Overstreet? Oh, no, actually, no. I, and that's those are the conversations that we've been having is, you know, again, big box is gone. Like it is not just Greenbrier Mall that's being repurposed. It's every mall you see in the news lately I've seen where Gwinnett Place Mall is totally uh, re- repurposed mm-hmm. uh, to the point where they're a super center for vaccinations. And um, Mall of Georgia is, is repurposed. Uh, Town Center Mall, I believe, or North Point Mall is 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 closing. So so yes, it's time to repurpose Greenbrier Mall. And what does that look like? That looks like me speaking with Marta about what a transit hub would look like at Greenbrier. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't look like you know more stores per se. It looks like an art center that the community can gather around or an amphitheater, or it looks like um, a, a, a place where a, a business development home, home. We don't have a place where people can actually go make copies right now. So maybe and work away from home. We don't have any of that. So we put out on Twitter. So yeah, so it, it looks like repurposing. Okay. Cause we put out on Twitter and, and we came up with some options and and Jason we asked folks hey you know what's the best option we we asked about a tv film production studio a massive co-working space a health and wellness center a creative arts incubator we had over mm-hmm. 100 people who voted and creative arts incubator mm-hmm. was number 1 and then tv mm-hmm. film production studio now I don't want y'all to go back and tell Tyler Perry that Rose Scott said you need to put a TV production studio there, but that's what's hot in Georgia. Let's be really clear. And yes. we know how big the it arts is. community is here in Georgia. Jason, I'll let you go first. Could you see some of that being part of whatever the new Greenbrier would look like? Most definitely. I think that this is a great way for Atlanta to really prove to natives, especially black and brown citizens that need this opportunity that we really care. And I think that it starts with, you know, again, going back to council member Overstreet's uh, vision and her saving Greenbrier event and having real conversations about what's needed. Our kids are creative. Um, Let's go back to the community when we had MBK. Uh, That was in the nineties and it was a creative hub. We have so many music artists. I've even taught some of the younger rappers in my class at Bunch Middle School. And, you know, they're doing some phenomenal things, but where are youth and young adults going to where they can show their creativity? It's, it's almost like we need to, you know, not reinvent the wheel, but maybe redevelop in a way where we're bringing in things that um, the community needs. Also, when you go to the parking lot, the food trucks, It's a sign that we need more restaurants in the mall. We need more restaurants connected to the mall. Piccadilly is a great example showing that we like quality food, we like good service, and we should have more options within the mall. And I think that that's something that um, people from the age of 104 to the age of 14 would like to Mm -hmm. see. Let me tell you about something about Piccadilly oh. Catfish. Woo. Uh, Council Member Overstreet. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> uh, I'm just keeping it real. Council Member Overstreet. My husband, too. <laughs> see, he knows. Let me ask you this because oh, yeah. there's something else that's missing over there. And we actually, I had someone say this to me on social media. You know what? How about a, a quality grocery grocery store? Why can't we have a Trader Joe's? And I'm just throwing this out there. Or, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, a Sprouts or what have you. Uh, you and I both know that there is a lot tied to when a major grocery store wants to come into a community. That's a whole nother conversation. But yeah. I don't want to yeah. call it a food desert, but you know the importance of having access to healthy, quality food. That's right. I do. I do. And um, so it, it's not lost on me. I totally agree that we could use two more nice grocery stores in that area. Um, we have a Kroger there that is so crowded and and it's the volume is there. Like people are ready to mm-hmm. and we're cooks. Let's be real, right? We're cooks. Mm-hmm. Southwest Atlanta should be full of fresh food because we like to cook. Mm-hmm. And um I am um, I will tell you all that in the last week I've had um 
a great, great meeting with a group that's interested in, uh, and this group is, is a studio. I, I'm not going to throw them out there right mm-hmm. now, but they're a studio that's interested in uh, some of the out parcels around Greenbrier. And perhaps, you know, I don't know what kind of, of conversations they've had with, with ownership. So people are, for the first time in a very long time, um, really, you know, thank you. First of all, I want to, before we get off, I want to thank you for bringing attention to this because that this is what it takes. Because that's why my phone has been ringing off the hook about Greenbrier Mall. And I've spoken with some really credible uh, developers since our saving Greenbrier. And one of them was um, a, a, a studio that mm-hmm. is like, this is a prime location. And I said, the only caveat is we're only interested in using our talent right here from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. We cannot allow you to bring in talent from another city because we are grooming talent right here in Atlanta with Clark Atlanta. Are you open to a partnership with um, the communications college of Atlanta? Are you Mm -hmm. open to that? And they said, yes, but I'm just, and then I, like two days ago, I had a long conversation about um, the art center. That's an opportunity uh, that I was speaking about it's an opportunity mm-hmm. to make sure that these creatives have a place to go. Um, and we know that what we do here in Atlanta, it resonates all over the world. The mm-hmm. culture just spreads. And that's culture that we've seen over the decades. Yes. So um, there are opportunities for Greenbrier Mall. I want to bring up another topic mm-hmm. because folks actually, they talked about this. They said, well, listen, we have an issue with housing affordability. We have needs for our unsheltered community. Someone talked about it could be a massive intake. We're not just for folks to come in off the street, but a, a massive resource intake center to help folks transition. I mean, we're talking about a lot of property here, so there are lots, mm-hmm. there are a lot of options. But I'll start with you, uh, Councilmember Overstreet. You you know affordable housing. I don't need to tell you mm-hmm. <laughs> what is needed. Yes. Could that work over yep. there? So that is something that's already in the works. And what we're doing now is developing um, very intentionally where we are all of the developers that we're dealing with now, which again, for, for the first time in decades um, are literally knocking on my door and we're working hand in hand with them, with Invest Atlanta. We are making sure that their developments are not just affordable housing, but market rate. So you're giving people a chance to be on every level in society and work together so that you get the development that you want around the the economic development that you want, the Trader Joe's and the Sprouts Mm -hmm. around those developments. So if it's all affordable, then you still aren't going to get the those type of restaurants and and grocery stores that you want. But if you mix in market rate and affordable, which we have three development plans, I would love to come back and give you those details, Rose. Absolutely. It's very exciting. Absolutely. We because have three, we have three development plans that are in the works right now where it's going to put uh, more foot traffic around Greenbrier Mall. And there is definitely a nice, huge component of affordable housing mixed in that as well. And before we let you go, because we definitely want you to come back and talk about that, because, Jason, as Mm -hmm. you know, um, when we talk about wanting to have mixed income and the council member Overstreet mentioned market rate, you know, depending on whom you ask, if you have to have mixed income, what should that be? Well, what should be guaranteed to the community, though? You are part of that. You talk to people because, listen, if you just say only 14 or 15 percent is going to be affordable, that that's nothing, man, that that you need more than that. How do you assure the community that they're going to get what they that they deserve? Not what is promised, because you can promise 14 percent and get it and it means nothing, but what they deserve. You as a member of the community, how do you hold those folks like the council member here and those developers? How do you hold them accountable? Well, I'm a big you know, advocate for engagement. And I think that we all can, you know, come together and do a better job of making sure that one, our community is informed and two, they have viable options to be engaged 
in this process. And so as an educator, I have connected, you know, my students with, you know, the AUC. Mm -hmm. I've also connected them with those who support seniors. Mm -hmm. And I think that we also have a generation gap that we can definitely feel here. A lot of our, our youth are saying that, listen, we want to build our own clothing lines and have our own, you know, boutiques in Greenbrier. Um, but we don't really know how to make the clothes. We had a vision for it, right? But our yeah. seniors, they know how to make it. And so I'm thinking about the constituents and, you know, council member Overstreet's district. How can we also give back to the very people who have seen Greenbrier from when it did not even have what it is now? And so bridging that gap between the generational divide. And so it doesn't seem as if we're doing this just for the young people, but sure. also for those dedicated members of our community. Jason and Atlanta City Councilmember Marcy Overstreet, I'm going to have you all back because I definitely want to continue this conversation. Lots of good suggestions. We'll see what happens. And of course, the catfish must stay. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And we have a, a podcast. Y'all know that. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.